welcome to This is Texas Wine. I'm Shelley Wilfong, a wine educator, writer, and Texas wine enthusiast. On this podcast, I share Texas wine news, interview the most important people in the Texas wine industry, and bring you the information you need to be a more informed Texas wine drinker. Thanks for joining me on this Texas wine journey. This is episode 77. My guests today are Kristen and Mike Nelson of Abastris in Stonewall. In 2020, I answered a call for harvest help. I met the Nelson family and have enjoyed getting to know them and their wines ever since. Our conversation includes their thoughts on the family business, sustainability, authenticity, and more. In the Texas news section, we've got ownership changes, new tasting rooms, travel news, and spring events that you won't want to miss. Whether you're a regular listener or joining in for the first time, welcome to This is Texas Wine. In North Texas news, Bob Landon of Landon Winery has purchased 90 acres from the city of Denison. The Landon Vineyard Project will include a distillery, brewery, wedding venue, and much more. Bob Landon says that it's hard for people to visualize where Landon grows their grapes, but that this new project will showcase the vineyard. The facility is expected to have an $8 to $12 million price tag. Groundbreaking will take place in around 18 months. So there are some ownership changes happening right now in Texas wine. Bent Oak Winery in Cedar Park near Austin announced recently that it has closed its tasting room, but that online sales continue until a new ownership team takes over. Audrey, John, Debbie, and Marilee are retiring from the wine business. Apparently, Fat Ass Ranch and Winery in Fredericksburg is also under new ownership and management. The original owners are sticking around to ensure a smooth transition. We've got a new tasting room opening in North Texas. It's another location for Bingham Family Vineyards, and it's in Roanoke. It's apparently very well located in an area where a lot of wine club members live and has already become a draw for new guests. And in the Texas Hill Country, Kerrville Hills Winery has opened a tasting house at Shriner University. It's located in a historic home adjacent to the campus, and it includes a five-acre teaching vineyard. Shriner will start offering a viticulture certificate program that offers practical training for vineyard workers. The old spot for Carville Hill Winery is now the home of Rivenberg Wine and Incubator. They'll be open on Fridays and on Saturdays by appointment. Also on site, you'll find the tasting room for Nobleman Wines. It's been a while since we've talked about the Dicamba lawsuit, but just last week, an Arizona court banned three Dicamba-based weed killers, which have been blamed for millions of acres of crop damage, including vineyard damage in Texas. This is the second time a federal court has banned these weed killers since they were introduced in the 2017 growing season. But a federal judge in Arizona ruled that the EPA made a critical error in reapproving dicamba. So far, I haven't seen any comments from Texas grape growers. Schiffer Hicks Johnson is the law firm that's representing the High Plains grape growers that have filed suit against the manufacturers of these weed killers, and they sent this response. We were pleased to see the decision from the United States District Court for the District of Arizona and agree with its conclusion that the risks from over-the-top dicamba applications, including to specialty crops like wine grapes, were never adequately considered by the EPA. While we expect this decision to be appealed, we hope that this is the beginning of the end for dicamba-resistant seed and the large-scale spraying of dicamba. 
Well, Garden and Gun Magazine features a new spread on Mason, Texas. Amy Beth Wright wrote An Insider's Guide to Mason, Texas, The Hill Country's Best Secret. And many of the great tasting rooms in Mason are mentioned, including Bill Blackman's new tasting room, Robert Clay Vineyards, Parr Vineyards, Fly Gap Winery, and Sandstone Cellars. I'm recording this on Valentine's Day, and in a recent article on Forbes.com, Lana Bordelot featured several Texas wines in the article Rosés for Valentine's Day. Her selection includes the Abastris Aurora Rosé from the Texas High Plains, the Farmhouse Vineyards Prohibition Rosé from the Texas High Plains, Invention Vineyards 4 Mouvedra Rosé, and the Wedding Oak Sweetheart Rosé. At the recent Texas Hill Country Wine Symposium, I found out that the William Chris Wine School has rebranded and will now be known as the Hill Country Wine Academy. They're offering WSET, which is Wine and Spirit Education Trust, courses, as well as the Texas Wine Ambassador Certification courses, and the new spring calendar is available now. The Texas Wine School also has a new section of the Specialist of Texas Wine course, taught by Dr. Russ Kane. That one starts in April, and I'll link to both of those course providers in the show notes. The owners of Fiesta Winery have introduced Arch Ray Resort in Fredericksburg. It includes a farm-to-table restaurant, a distillery, a brewery, a winery, conference center, RV park, and a new Living Tree Amphitheater live music venue. At the winery, winemaker Weston McCrory leads the winemaking team. Arch Ray Winery produces a selection of rosé, red, white, and dessert wines made with Texas-grown grapes. There are a couple of dates coming up this spring that you'll want to keep in mind. May 4th is the annual Texas Wine Auction. This year, it's moving locations and happening at Carter Creek in Johnson City. I had a great time last year and will attend again. If you attend, you can expect a lively evening of Texas wine, Tasty Bites, a live auction, and more. This event has raised over $375,000 towards programming focused on providing affordable mental health coverage, wellness and preventive care, and also supports initiatives by Texas A&M AgriLife Extension. You can get involved by being a sponsor, by buying tickets to attend, or by donating auction items. Find out more at texaswineauction.com. And then the very next day, I'll be in Austin at the Wine and Food Foundation's annual event, Toast of Texas. I'll be the host of the winemaker panel during the VIP pre-party, and those tickets are already on sale now for members of Wine and Food Foundation. So the VIP pre-party is once again members only, but the rest of the event is open to all. It's at a new location this year, closer to central Austin. It's at a place called Springdale Station. If you've attended, you know you've got top-notch wineries and food, and it's an afternoon that you won't want to miss. If you're thinking about joining Wine and Food Foundation to get those VIP tickets, maybe this will help you decide. The wines that we'll be pouring for the winemaker panel this year during the VIP event are all Rhone varieties. Yep, we're doing a deeper dive into grape varieties from the Rhone, and it should be a great time. And of course, that's available at winefoodfoundation.org. If your winery is the wine competition entering kind, please note that both the Texas International Wine Competition and the Finger Lakes International Wine Competition 
are currently accepting entries. I'll be going back to the Finger Lakes in June to judge Finger Lakes IWC, and I sure hope that I'll get to taste some great Texas wines during my stay there. So don't forget to enter. One more quick note, I have it on good authority that all Texas wines will be 10% off at HEB February 21st to March the 5th. So go meet your local HEB wine steward and show Texas wines some love. As always, find links to all of these stories in the show notes at thisistexaswine.com. And that's the Texas Wine News. And now for our interview. Mike and Kristen Nelson are co-founders of Abastris Winery, along with Kristen's parents, Tony and Aaron Smith. Mike is the winemaker and Kristen is the general manager. This Stonewall Winery has made a big splash in just a few years, and I recently sat down with Kristen and Mike to hear their story. Tell me about how you got interested in wine. So for me, it started at a young age. Um, my dad was in the airline industry. He used to work for American Airlines in their marketing department, and then he helped start American Eagle, their like regional jet carrier. Um, so he was tasked with opening um, different like locations and hubs for them on the West Coast, and one of those was San Luis Obispo, California. He fell in love with it. It reminded them of Spain. Um, so we started vacationing out there pretty frequently. They fell in love with the wine out there. A lot of people will tell you, or you'll hear anecdotally, that you know the central coast of California or different parts of California were very much like Texas is now in the late 80s, early 90s, whatever. And I was there. I saw that, and it's not untrue. Uh, so we vacationed out there. I was a young kid. You know, parents went to wineries a lot, went to vineyards, and my sister and I were the annoying kids, like running up vineyard rows and trying to weasel our way into the barrel room. And parents did wine tastings, and you know, I mean, it was limited to that at a young age. But the smell of the barrel room, the wind blowing through the vineyard, it kind of sticks with you. And so later on in life, when we kind of fell in love with wine properly. That was always a very like big nostalgic tie to just you know the sensations, the sensorial effect that you get from being at a production facility or in a vineyard. It just brought me back to those memories I had as a kid uh, running up and down the central coast with my family. So fast forward, we vacationed out there a lot. Uh, my parents had a condo out there for a while. And then when I was a senior in college, they ended up moving out there. So while I was in law school and Kristen uh, started her teaching career, my parents lived in Arroyo Grande, California, which is just outside San Luis Obispo. And me being in school, her being a teacher, she had all sorts of time. We had, you know, I had spring break, fall break, Thanksgiving, Christmas, uh, long stretches in the summer. So we would go out there all the time, go wine tasting and just kind of fell in love with it. This was, you know, we were both like 21, 22. So this was like 2000. Eight, nine, ten ish. And then, kind of to segue that to Kristen's family, they started coming out with us to California to kind of see what all the fuss was about. And then realized, you know, Texas has a wine scene too. Like, let's go there. And so they lived in San Antonio at the time. We would come and visit them and uh, go and visit some of the tasting rooms on the 290 corridor. You know, there weren't that many of them back then, but they existed and, and we just started, you know, making that a regular trip to check in on, on what Texas was doing in the wine scene. Do you remember any notable wineries or wines that you visited in those early days of uh, your Texas exploration? I know the first one that we went to ever was Woodrose. Um, okay. So I tried probably Chris Brundrett's first ones, you know, there <laughs> uh, unknowingly. 
Um, Becker, Texas Hills. I'm trying to remember where else we went. You know, it was a it was a weird time in Texas. Like that was still very early in the uh, history of Texas wine, in my opinion. And so, you know, you go to four or five tasting rooms those weekends, and you know, we're pretty good wine consumers. We know that you when you go to a tasting, you're wanting to taste the wine to buy wine, but you know, you'd only come home with three or four bottles after going to five or six tasting rooms in a weekend. But as years went by, that that ratcheted up significantly. You know, you started seeing people growing Sangiovese and Tempranillo, and then Tanat was like my aha moment in Texas wine. Yeah, it got more and more exciting. And as you could see the trajectory that the wine industry had, that was when the conversation started with our family. It was like, it would be really cool to be a part of this. You know, like, what does that look like? Is that possible? Could we do it? Would you do it? And uh, here we are. Here you are. Well, I see why you fell in love with that part of the Central Coast. Kristen gave me a bunch of tips when we went out there last year for the first time, and it is beautiful. It's awesome. It's a special place. Well, I'm glad that you've landed here in Texas. Um, tell me a little bit about what Abastris looks like now. You guys are out in Stonewall. Tell me a little bit about your property and what you've got going on out there. Uh, well, so the property is 106 acres total. Uh, we have 46 of those acres high-fenced. Uh, we grow 12 acres of estate vines. Uh, that's divided up between four acres of Tanat, two acres of Chizau, uh or Zausa, which is a Portuguese varietal, uh, two acres of Claret Blanche, two acres of Petit Syrah, and two acres of Montepulciano. We have a production facility with almost 10,000 gallons of tank space, um, pretty significant barrel room. Our annual case production is somewhere, you know, it, it ebbs and flows, but about 6,500 cases a year. Usually 2,500 um, white and like 4,000 cases of red wine. We're very much family run. You know, like the the four of us, Kristen and I and her parents, do the bulk of just the day-to-day stuff. Uh, we have one truly full-time employee, Elizabeth Connick, who's my assistant winemaker. And then we have part-time tasting room staff that kind of, you know, um, rotates around depending on needs and hours and vacations and stuff like that. But yeah, I mean... It's not a big operation. In theory, I guess we could use some help, but we're happy to do it on our own as long as we can to uh, just, you know, be present, enjoy it, and make sure everything gets done right. I know family businesses can be overwhelming and just a ton of work, especially at certain times of the year. And I think the last time I drove out to Abastris to buy some wine, Kristen, you were there and you were like, I'm not supposed to be here. I'm in my workout clothes and I'm just finished carpool, but I had to print something out for the wine club and... Yes. It's, it's I, got a, you've got two little girls at home, so I know it's a lot. It is. Ironically enough, I'm going out later today to do the same printing <laughs> I was doing last time you we were there. Um, I mean, it, that's wonderful thing about family business is the flexibility and the fact, you know, my parents live on property. They're willing to kind of step in and help and, you know, they do so much. Um, I can't emphasize that enough. And then also balancing with family. So it can be tricky, but... It's a, it's been a good, good ride. Mike, in his former life was an attorney that worked nonstop. We never saw him. And so I think something that I feel like we've gotten right is that it's all about quality of life. And that's what, you know, being in the, this family business has provided us for sure. That's great. And I know that I see you on social media a lot and people are looking, especially for family friendly wineries. And you're saying, yes, we are family friendly and our girls are usually with us if it's a time that there aren't other family obligations going on. Yes. They go out there all the time. 
Um, our oldest is kind of not so excited about it right now. <laughs> she goes out there a lot, and I think it's just kind of like, no, this isn't fun. But our youngest loves it. I can totally see her maybe walking in dad's footsteps. She loves to smell the wine. She'll, uh, she plays tasting room, and I have little videos of her asking her pretend customers if they would like the Claret Blanche. <laughs> oh, that's okay. Yeah. She's yeah. like one of, probably one of the only seven-year-olds who knows the difference between Tempranillo and Tanat, and that, you know, we grow one of them and we buy one of them. And yeah, I bet that's true. It's fun. It's fun. Um, speaking of different varieties you have out there, I think you were the first in Texas to grow Claret Blanche. Yes, I believe so. Why um, did you pick that? So, I mean... If I'm being honest, it was almost a happy accident. We intended on planting Pickpool Blanc. And when we were ready to plant, they, you know, had some failures at the nursery. They couldn't fulfill the order. They gave us some other options that were in a similar vein. Um, so we scrambled. I mean, I, I you know, distinctly remember calling uh, Tobless Creek to plead for them to sell us a bottle of Claret Blanche because we really needed to try it because we were going to plant it. But, you know, it was a limited release, only available to their wine club, but they were generous enough to send us a couple bottles. Um, we looked up, the, you know, the profiles, the growing regions, the conditions that it likes, and it seemed like it would grow pretty well in Texas. Um, so, yeah, we planted that in 2018. And I think, you know, I, I want to say Alan Fetty had some at the old West Cave, and they might have planted it the year before or that same year, but it wasn't like a large planting, and I think they used it as a blender for their Vermentino. Um, I believe they planted some at Farmhouse now, and then there's a place in Dublin, actually, that has some. But as okay. far as I know... We're the only winery to have commercially produced it, and we're the only vineyard that has like grown a, a commercial level crop of it in Texas. And you've made it in sparkling and still, right? We have, yes. Yeah. So we did a pet nat in 2020, loved it. I think our plan is to do a 2024 Method Champenois. We're going to pick like three or four rows super early, get that TA up, get the pH down, and it'll be Method Champenois. I mean, it won't be with all the fancy equipment. We'll kind of have to figure that part out, but a small run of that should be doable. So that's the goal. Nice. I want to talk a little bit about Texas Wine Growers. Okay. Which is an organization that's just been around a few years, I guess, that represents Texas wineries and growers that commit to being 100% Texas wine. Why did you choose to join that? And what do you think are the benefits of being aligned with that way of thinking? Well, I would say that um, when we started in the industry, we wanted to be a part of like a, a statewide trade organization. So we joined a different statewide trade organization that we thought kind of would represent Texas wine producers and found that, you know, the majority of their membership was, we were not doing the same thing. We were not in the same boat. They were either buying bulk wine from out of state, shiners from out of state, um, you know, they were in like tacitly in the Texas wine industry, but our business models could not be more different. And so we bailed out of that one. Um, they're still going strong. You know, they always will. They've got their base membership. And like I said, it's, it, it may not align fully with the, uh, like what, what we want. Um, but then Chris Brundred approached us, you know, after they had started Texas wine growers and we had a conversation about kind of what their goals were and, 
uh, what our goals were, and they completely lined up. You know, uh, authenticity matters to them, and it matters a lot to us. You know, taking care of growers and making sure that quality fruit is available is important to them, and that's very important to us. Um, making sure from a legislative perspective that we have protections or you know, people to lobby for us, uh, and, and for us specifically, not for other people kind of in the industry who sort of do what we do, you know? So it was important if we're going to spend the money to be a part of an organization like that, to actually have it line up with our values and goals and uh, aspirations. And Texas Wine Growers for sure does that. Um, Kristen, I know there are a number of myths that seem to be uh, running wild on social media. I love it when I see see that you've piped in with a comment about setting people straight on a couple topics. And one of them is just the importance of family farms and family farmers. That's an issue that you must feel pretty strongly about. I definitely do. You know, I, I see so many people talking about how they want to eat farm to table but they don't drink farm to table. Um, we don't get the support in Texas restaurants that I think we're due. Even like the Austin Food and Wine Festival, they don't have any Texas wine that they serve at their festival, which is really disappointing and frustrating, especially because, you know, at this point, look at all the gold medals and accolades that Texas Wines won in San Francisco. Like that's probably one of the most prestigious wine competitions in the world. So we're showing we can hang. Um, but for whatever reason, there's just this misconception or, you know, call it what you want. Um, that Texas wine just isn't as good as other wineries and from other places. I told people like you eat local, let's drink local. And I, I've told our friends that I told our family that, and I really, really try to push that on social media. Um, I comment a lot on Austin food and wine festival when they are, um, publicizing their festival. And I actually, I did get a like on my comment by them last time. So maybe, maybe we'll start to see some Texas wine there. But when we were at Texas Hill Country Winery Symposium, uh, Chris Brundrett gave a, a talk and was saying that, you know, of all the wine consumed in Texas, while we are, you know, such a large consumer of wine as a state, only 3% is Texas wine. And so I think, you know, it's time to start supporting not only, you know, your farmers for food and agriculture, but include wineries, grape growing vineyards in that as well. There are so many Texans that don't even know Texas makes wine. Yes. <laughs> I know, it's wild. That and like, I feel like some of it's on the restaurant owners or the people that are curating their wine lists, you know, like there are restaurants in Fredericksburg, like the amount of Austin Hope Cabernet on wine lists in Fredericksburg is maddening. Like, I'm sorry, if you think Austin Hope is like the prototypical example of Cabernet Sauvignon, your palate sucks. Uh, there are restaurants in Fredericksburg that have no Texas wines on their menu, maybe one or two that are widely distributed, and they literally live 20 minutes from the epicenter of Texas wine. They could easily pull up a list of gold medal winning wines from major competitions, taste 30 of them over the course of a few days, and I promise you they could fill up a restaurant wine list with quality Texas wine. But they're lazy. They don't want to do that. They, it's low-hanging fruit. It's, you know whatever the easiest, the path of least resistance is. And that's so frustrating. You know, like, do you, do you want to spend your hard earned money patronizing places that really just want to do as little work as they possibly can? I also think, and we saw this through the pandemic, there's a lot to do with the, the lobbying, the lobbyists and what they have on our government. I mean, we don't get a lot of support from 
in my opinion, from our government. And, and, uh, that would help as well. I took my W set recently and something I really loved about that. And I, I was talking with a friend from Italy is that, you know, in Europe, they grow up knowing what wines grow in what region and what regional foods pair with those wines. And, you know, she's from Tuscany, but she can literally, I can ask her about another region. She can tell me all about it and what I can expect. And I think that's largely missing from America and our, and our diet. And, and, um, I think that if people knew more about that, were more educated about that, maybe they'd start asking for more Texas wines on their menu to pair with regional cuisines. I think that's, that would be wonderful. Um, Becker's starting a, a project called Ask for Texas Wines that we're excited about. We're hosting a meeting on that towards the end of the month, um, just really encu- encouraging our consumers to ask for Texas wine at, wines at their restaurants because until they start to do that, the Psalms, the people in charge of the wine programs, aren't they don't have any reason to increase Texas wines on their menus at this point. So. Yeah. Ask and be specific. You, know, why don't, you need to have this wine. I've had this wine and it's good contact that winery, buy it from them. Yeah, you know? I like, like that. Saying just buy Texas wine, you know, like every, every restaurant usually works with a distributor. They probably have three or four Texas wines on that list. And it's not necessarily going to be enough to just pick one or two of those to have some Texas wine. Like be specific, be an advocate. Like that's really what our industry needs. You've had some success in restaurants lately. Mm-hmm. We have. You want to tell me about that? Yeah. We've been in some Fredericksburg restaurants for a while. Um, but I kind of got a, a cryptic email from a sommelier out of New York who said she was working on a project in Waco and had done some research and would like to possibly taste some of our wines. So I met with her, found out that it was actually for Hotel 1928 in Waco, which is Chip and Joanna Gaines' hotel slash restaurant project. And she was really awesome. I don't know that... Uh, the Gaines are necessarily huge wine drinkers, or if they are, you know, I don't know that they're in, on the Texas wine scene, but Evie was really insistent. You have a, a, a wine scene and you need Texas wines on your menu. And so she narrowed down from a list of 14 wineries and uh, chose us to be on there. The Dallas market is pretty hard to break into <laughs> for Texas wine. And so uh, we have our Pitbull Blanc at Mr. Charles. And then actually, this was a really cool opportunity. Um, some of the Becker's staff, I guess, uh, Dr. Becker knows Chef uh, Dean Fearing of Fearings up in Dallas. And he sent his psalm down to taste some Texas wine, and, and Becker recommended us, and he fell in love with our Tanat. And since then, Chef Fearing has bought Tanat for his personal stash. And, yeah. and they've, yeah, that's been. It's been like everything I just said about, you know, Texas restaurants not doing their due diligence. Like, Fearings is the example of what you should do. He heard specific producers. He sent his psalm, psalm tasted the wine, picked the ones that he liked, and now they have a little Texas wine section. And it's good. It's That's good cool. wine, you know? Well, and you guys are the poster children for um, Texas wine in Dallas because in D Magazine, a few years ago, you, your kids were on the cover. Well, you and one of the yes, girls anyway, right? That was or really crazy. Them, yeah. um, a journalist came down and they sent back a photographer and I took the girls after school. It was August it was near dinner time. They were cranky and the photographer got a vision that she wanted our girls in this photo. And, and we didn't ever think it'd be like a cover photo, but we spent about an hour and a half and truly the shot that landed the, the cover was one of the last ones we took. And that was a good thing because I had some hangry kids at that point. 
Okay, so you guys opened your, let's see, what year did you plant your vineyard and what year did you open your tasting room? 2018. Okay. Well, it, it seems to me, as the casual observer, that Abastris is off to a really fast start. You guys have won a lot of awards, and in fact, um, this website, Top Texas Wines, that puts together all the medal winners from wine competitions around the U.S., um, you're, I think, number four from 2022 in number of gold medals and higher. To what do you attribute that success? Well, a lot of hard work, um, a, a lot of work, and a lot of good people that, that help along the way. You know, um, John Rivenberg, we contacted him in 2015. It was kind of one of those stars aligning moments. You know, fell in love with Tanat at Bending Branch. Um, I think we joined their wine club or Tony and Aaron joined their wine club. So we were getting, you know, emails and updates from them. And we saw John Rivenberg has left Bending Branch. He plans on starting a consulting business. And um, I talked to Tony and it was like, you know, that was kind of the main thing missing all of our conversations about, could we start a winery in Texas? What would that look like? How would we do it? The main question was like, well, neither of us know what the hell we're doing. So that, you know, it could go very wrong. Having met John, having talked to him, having fallen in love with his Tanat, the fact that he started consulting was like, okay, let's kick the tires and see if that is a relationship that we could uh, develop. And from the jump, it was awesome. Um, and he taught me just about everything I know, uh, like comprehensively from a vineyard perspective, production perspective, logistics perspective. You know, there's a lot, uh, you know, the the idea that a winemaker sits around and tastes wine all day is is wildly inaccurate. You know, there's a lot of stuff that goes on, a lot of decisions that you have to make, a lot of planning that's required. And he, he taught me everything, um, along the way. So that was very important. Um, acquiring quality fruit is important, you know, identifying, uh, specific vineyards that you want fruit from, um, being persistent, but not annoying, you know, um, following up, cultivating those relationships, paying your bills on time. Uh, that has been very helpful. We have uh, really good relationships with some premier growers that, you know, there's the old adage, uh, you can make really good wine out of really good fruit, but, you know, there's there's a ceiling if the fruit's not that good. So being able to buy fruit from Neil Newsom or Andy Timmons, you know, it, it makes a difference, especially when you're first starting out. Knowing what your plan is, you know, that's that's huge. Like we knew from the start, like our kind of two favorite varietals as a family were Tanat and Pickpool. So we've always made Tanat and Pickpool. We've done other stuff along the way. You know, Texas, you got to have a Tempranillo. People love Cab and Rhone blends, but we always make Tanat. We always make Pickpool. It's consistent. You can bank on us having one of those if you come. I see some startups that get a little fuzzy. It's like every year they make different stuff. There's no consistency. Um, and, you know, I think you need consistency uh, as a young winery, but even as an older winery, you know, you got to have your calling card varietals, calling card blends, um, and be consistent with those. I really liked your interview with Kim McPherson. You know, he preached consistency and quality, and that is so important. Like, we will not release a wine that we're not confident in. Uh, if we taste it, if something went sideways along the way, if it is flawed, like it's getting blended away, dumped down the drain, distilled into brandy, 
you know, something, it's not just going to be bottled and, you know, quickly sold off. Like that's, that's not how we operate. And, and I think that that's hugely important in Texas wine. You know, like there are a lot of singular wines that I've tried that have been very good, but if they are surrounded by low quality or subpar wines on a tasting menu, they lose a lot of that shine. And I think that, you know, that's kind of the next step for the Texas wine industry. In my opinion is getting past the individual wines that are really good and going to the like collective wine portfolios that are really good. And like, can you be a winery that top to bottom, your tasting list is high quality and, uh, and good and consistent. And then, you, you know, the next time you, you change your tasting menu is that are all five or all six of those wines, uh, good, palatable, varietally correct. Um, you know, that's, that's extremely important. I think too, just a proud wife moment. Uh, Mike has an incredible palate and probably about once a year we get together to try all the new wines he has planned as a family before they go into barrel or whatever Mike's going to do with them. And he just, I mean, he comes home and he's like, well, I think I want to add 18% of this to this. <laughs> like, how did you possibly come up with this percentage? But it always works. He knows his wine and knows what blends are going to work. And so. Yeah. Very proud of him. Well, thank you. That seems like a big responsibility to trust in your palate. I guess you also have an assistant winemaker and maybe some friends that you call in for other opinions, or is it just pretty much what you think? Yeah. I mean, I definitely, you know, if I have a question, I'm not afraid to ask it of everybody that I come into contact with, but uh, (laughs) yeah, no, I mean, you're right. It's a very, it's a responsibility I don't take lightly. You know, I also, I don't know this. I feel like it's a weird way to say it, but I feel like I have a chip on my shoulder from how uh, blessed I am, if that makes sense. Like I, you know, I did not work my way up the ranks. I didn't start as a seller assistant and like work my way up and finally get like a dream job as a winemaker. Like I was the guy in the family that wanted to do it. And so like, I just did it. Um, but like, that's like this holy responsibility to me. Like, you know, I was gifted this job. So like I have to kick ass and if I don't, it's a massive failure. Like there's no resting on laurels. There's no, uh, you know, half-assing it. Like it's all on me. And if it goes sideways, it's probably my fault. (laughs) So, uh, I'm not going to let that happen. You know, that's just like, this is, uh, this is everything to us. So, um, yeah, it's a, a huge responsibility that I don't take lightly. So the first several vintages you made at Corville Hills Winery as part of the incubator, and then I believe it was last year that you opened the production facility there at Abastris. That's correct. That's got to be very different from being in a kind of communal space where you have other people working, other winemakers, and then you're kind of by yourself on your own property, just mm-hmm. uh, doing it all. And, and a little is it lonely? Um, not really. I mean, I, Elizabeth, my assistant winemaker, is always there with me. So yeah, yeah it's we're, we're thick as thieves, partners in crime, so to speak. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's got, you know, there are benefits and, uh, negatives to that setup. I mean, in Kerrville Hills, it was great. There was a good collaborative environment. If somebody had a problem or a question, you know, it's, you've got eight people there to kind of just talk about it, bat it around and, oh, well, you could do this. Have you tried this? Have you thought about this? I saw this happen one time and this is what they did, or I heard about this. And, you know, it's a good kind of collaborative, uh, environment, but on the flip side of that, if, you know, we have a three-hour task that we want to get done, um, you know, that might involve, like, getting to the winery, 
seeing that someone's in the middle of doing something that's going to take two to three hours. The next, you know, thing to be done is somebody else that was already there and already planned it. And that's going to take an hour or two. And then, you know, we get the opportunity to do our three hour task, but it, you know, the sum total of all of those things means we're there for nine hours doing a three hour project. So it's nice to be able to spend three hours on a three hour project now. Um, but you know, you do miss the just collaborative, uh, kind of partnership, mm-hmm. but there was definitely, you know, Elizabeth will have a random day off and Mike will be by himself and he'll come home <laughs> and I'll ask him, were you kind of lonely today? Yeah, just by myself all day. <laughs> so. Playing whatever music you want yeah. to play. Yeah, Playing yeah. This is Texas Wine listening, Podcast. Yeah, listening to your podcast, probably. Oh, that's, that's for weekends when oh. I can't listen to sports radio. Oh, I see. I see. Well, this year, you entered into, I guess, an agreement to do a sustainability project along with Petter Allison, William Chris. I know you're at the very beginning of the phases of what that project might look like, but can you just tell us a little bit about it and and why you're interested in putting yourself out there on a sustainability topic, which is kind of new in Texas. Yeah, absolutely. Colleen Miles, the professor from Texas State, um, she contacted me uh, talking about the project. And really, in the beginning, it just seemed like I have a, a student. He is writing a thesis, and we're just interested in sustainability and wine. And would you want to answer this questionnaire and have a phone conversation? And it started real small. And then I think as she saw the interest and, you know, the fact that Petternalis, William, Chris, Abastris were all in our kind of in different spots on this journey to be sustainable, we got together and realized like, well, I mean, this is really, really important to the Texas wine scene. And so uh, we had a long meeting and decided we needed to take a few next steps, um, kind of going over different surveys to figure out where we are, and not just sustainability in the vineyard, but I mean economic sustainability, social sustainability, um, all different facets. And so she's collecting all the data from that, and we're going to see what we have in common. I mean, I feel like at Abastris, since we just got our production facility, we're like just kind of starting out even thinking, you know, what could be sustainable. But we're excited to see where this could go. She has a lot of students interested in the project, it seems like. And we're hoping, you know, if if the three of us as wineries kind of stand up and say, okay, we're going we're gonna to try this out. We're going to see what works. We very clearly realize that we have some limitations living in Texas with our, our weather on certain parts of that. But um, if the three of us stand up and we commit to it, hopefully, as an industry, we can encourage others to, to join as well. I think, yeah, it mostly comes back to just being like a steward for the environment. You know, that's like a catchy phrase, but we can see that climate is changing and being wacky. And we can see that, you know, if you don't take care of your environment, it doesn't take care of you. So like, what can we do, whether it's like a minimal or, you know, extreme, like what could we possibly do to be more sustainable? Um, You know, there's little things like we have... um, instead of using uh, synthetic herbicides, you know, can you disc and till and cultivate under the rose? Like you can sometimes. Um, and, you know, we try to mix that in instead of using synthetic herbicides because of environmental concerns. Um, can you use less water in the vineyard? You know, maybe, maybe not. Depends on the rain, depends on the drought, depends on all these things. Can you get away from spraying, you know, fungicides or insecticides? Some years, yes. Some years, no. Can you do it minimally? Can you not overspray? Definitely. 
Um, you know, can you vary your sprays to help reduce uh, fungal or disease pressure? Like, yes, that's a very good idea to do. By the way, at the recent wine symposium, Dr. Colleen Miles said that she's happy to add additional wineries to her sustainability project. It's not too late. So reach out to her if your winery is interested in joining this project. You can reach out through one of the participating wineries or let me know and I can put you in touch. So like one other trend that we're seeing, you know, there's a shift in alcohol consumption. Uh, The WHO came out recently and said, there's no safe level of alcohol that you could possibly consume. And this like contradicts other studies that say, you know, two glasses a day is actually beneficial for your health. You know, in red wine in particular, there are antioxidants and polyphenols like resveratrol that, you know, is very good for your heart. Uh, Antioxidants in general are very good for your heart. And, you know, it's just, it's a, a weird time, a scary time to see people just kind of shying away from alcohol in general or wine in general. Like wine is this magical thing. Um, truly, like if you look at it from every angle, you know, look at a grapevine in January, it just looks like a dead, you know, bush. As the year goes by, you prune it up, buds break, you have shoots, you have fruit forming, and this fruit is magical. It's got acids in it that act as preservatives. It's got acids that get converted to other types of acids that improve the flavor. Uh, it's one of the few fruits that gets up to a sugar level that you know you can produce alcohol at a content above 10%, uh, which is very, very good for uh, preservation, shelf life, flavor, fruitiness. Um, it has built-in sulfides to help preserve it too. Um, and it reacts well on a chemical basis with things like sulfur dioxide to preserve it. Um, it's delicious. Uh, it grows pretty much anywhere. Um, it's just, to me, it's very scary that people are dismissing wine and lumping it in with you know gin or vodka or whatever, because wine is a sacred thing, and it's awesome. And, you know, we should not just promote it, but like protect it. None of these movements, whether it's, you know, we should stop drinking alcohol or let's smoke more weed or whatever, whatever the case may be, like wine has to stay. Wine is, it's a magical thing and it's important. It's been culturally important for thousands of years. There's no signs that that's going to go away, but you know, just don't forget to advocate for wine. I would say. I would also just encourage a consumer to look at who the leadership is right now behind the WHO. Um, in that I believe there's some religious and political persuasions as to why they would uh, try and push no alcohol at all. Yeah. One of the most serious health risks, of course, is, is you know loneliness and depression in older age. And I think wine is a communal beverage, especially when shared around the table. Definitely. And that's something that we do need to promote and protect. It was interesting at Symposium, I attended that last talk about the New York Wine and Grape Growers Foundation, I think it's called, and they're doing a new certification seal mm-hmm. and program, and um, the guy shared what that looks like, but also some statistics about who cares about sustainability and what impact does being sustainable have, specifically with the seal, having a seal on the bottle, and you know, young people really care about that, and everyone knows that young drinkers are not drinking wine like we want them to. And like, 
like other kind generations in the past have. So I think that that is one thing that, you know, may be a way to encourage more people to, to drink wine. Um, and another thing is economic conditions that, that prohibit, I think, younger people from getting into wine. And one of the things some um, folks are doing is kind of creating a, maybe a second label that's a bit less expensive. And I think that's what you have in mind with your upcoming Mesa label. It is. So that's a, a collaborative project uh, between myself and my brother-in-law, Mitchell Chirac. He's about to open a restaurant in Fredericksburg. Um, and he wanted a, uh, a wine label to be kind of the house wine. And he wanted that wine to be lower intervention, very simple packaging, lower price point, uh, quick kind of turnaround. You know, you're not going to buy a, a wine from that label that's been aged for three years. It's going to be aged for, you know, eight to 14 months or something like that. And then kind of a quick turn, fresh, crisp, uh, you know, lively. Um, these are all the things that we're looking for. So, yeah, it's an exciting an exciting project. Uh, we got some great fruit from uh, Farmhouse, from Katie Jane and the folks up at Farmhouse this year, from uh, the days at Buena Suerte. Um, yeah, really, really excited about about that label. So Mesa, you know, means table in Spanish. And so Mitch made the decision to go with the, the label name Mesa because he uh, – loves the idea of European table wine and the fact that at his restaurant, you're going to be able to go and have kind of the house wine. Um, and it's going to be, you know, like we're using packaging alternatives. We're going to keg a lot of it, serve it um, on tap. Um, a lot will be bottled, but um, kind of an even split between kegs and bottles. Um, you know, pretty simple label, no capsule, really easy cork. Um, just, yeah, like Kristen was saying, kind of red blend and white blend or just red or, uh, we have a red blend, a white blend, a wine that we're calling red ish because it is kind of the color of a rosé, but with the body of a red wine. And then we do have a classic rosé as well. Very fun. And will they be available in distribution at all? Or is it just small production at this point? Undecided, undecided. Yeah. Um, probably, You'll see it in more restaurants than just the one in Fredericksburg, at least to start. Um, whether or not it will be in like wine shops or you know have an online uh, outlet for it is still undecided. Okay, so Mitchell has a big new project in his restaurant. Do you want to spill the beans on what's going on there? Yes. So he uh, and my sister Catherine purchased La Bergerie. If you have been to Fredericksburg, you might have been there. And it is going to be his first restaurant concept called The Standard. And it, I don't, I feel like it might change, you know, weekly what exactly they're doing. But the concept, from what I understand, is they're going to really focus on breakfast, lunch, and brunch. And then they'll have some specials for dinner, but still keeping that really good Bergerie vibe of being able to go in and have a glass with a friend or you know, read a book with a beer, whatever you, whatever you want to do. So I'm really excited for them. He's worked so hard on this project. Yeah. It's going to be a cool mix. Like it's a, it's the standard public house. So the standard pub. So it's like predicated on the idea of the pub that everybody goes to in England to, you know, gather and talk about the day, have a beer to wind down. Um, But then with like the uh, gastronomic portion of it being like French bistro style cuisine, and then with local ingredients and local wines, beers. So yeah, it's going to be, it's going to be exciting. 
Well, I know he's quite a chef because I was one of the folks who got to come do the tasting at Abastris when you had that a while back. He's extremely talented. Yeah. And it, I see his Instagram and it makes me hungry. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> one of the exciting milestones that you had, I guess, last year is that you released quite a few estate wines and I know you've got more planned. Tell me about um, what that has looked like and what those estate wines mean to you. Yeah. I mean, they mean everything, you know, there's, there are a handful of us, but it's a limited number of people who grow grapes and make wine. You know, usually it's one or the other. Um, and when you do both, it's a lot of information kind of bouncing around in your head, a lot of responsibilities and activities and time spent and, you know, just anxiety, watching the weather, uh, cursing the weather, getting sad about the weather. But, you know, when everything kind of comes together and you get a great crop, you make a good wine, and it's well-received, um, it's very special. So 2020 was our first harvest for red wines. You know, it kind of lines up, planted 2018, 2019, third leaf, you know, we got a decent crop. We've got uh, Estate Tanat, Estate Chazau, Estate Petit Syrah, and then our 2022 uh, Claret Blanche was kind of included in that estate release. But we released those to our wine club members in December. Uh, shortly thereafter, we were lucky enough to find out. So we entered Tanat and Chazau in San Francisco. Um, both got gold medals. We did not enter the Petit Syrahs. We're already down to like, I think we have 20 cases of that left. It was a very, very small production. We made like three barrels of it. Um, and then the Claret, uh, we also have had kind of a weak crop in 2022. So because we only have about 40 cases of that left, we did not enter that one. But uh, we have a decent amount of Shazao. We have got a, a good amount of Tanat. Entered both of those. They got gold medals. So excited about that. The wines taste fantastic. And they've been very well received by uh, pretty much everyone we've poured them for. That's cool. Yeah, it's exciting. And, uh, you know, you have a, a tie to the Shazau, uh, <laughs> helping us harvest that. I remember geeking out when I heard your podcast, like the next week, talking about the experience. So, Yeah, that was, I had just started the podcast, actually, because I guess we harvested that in probably end of July or August. And I think I had started the podcast that June. So, yeah. Yeah, that was a very cool experience. Yeah, time flies, right? Yeah. Um, I want to talk a bit about white wines because we've spent a little bit of time on some of the reds. I feel like Hill Country white wines in particular are like a little underestimated, but they keep getting these big awards. Yeah. So for me, and I, you know, the science is divided on this, but some people think that if you grow grapes on top of high minerality soil, you know, soil with a lot of limestone or other different types of stone uh, that the grapes themselves will reflect some sort of minerally minerality characteristic. There's science that says that's not true and there's science that says it is true. And for me, I have to believe it because I feel like every vintage of Claret from our vineyard has this underlying minerality and we've dug soil pits and I know that 24 inches below the sandy loam that's on top of it, there's decomposed limestone. And so those roots are definitely in that limestone looking for water. And I would just, I, you know, the fact that it tastes minerally to me, like makes me think that that is true. 
I've tried different clarets. I've tried French clarets. I've tried Tablas' uh, claret in California. Uh, there's another producer, Jay Ducey, who has a claret from a vineyard called Paper Street in California. I've had that. They're all very good, but they, I, the Tablas, the Tablas Creek one did have some minerality, but I know that their vineyard is also on lime, uh, soil with a, a good limestone content. So whether or not that's true, you know, I think that if it is true, that's one reason why, uh, there's some appeal for Texas white wines. You're going to get that minerality. You're going to be able to perceive it more on a white wine than you would on a red, but it will also be present on the reds. Um, also, you know, I think there's just like an uptick in quality and winemaking uh, over the past several years, you know, whether it's people learning new methods, bringing in winemakers from abroad, hiring consultants, whatever the case may be. Um, you know, people are just doing a better job. Like white wines are interesting because it's like all the work is on the front end. You know, once it's fermenting and it's white wine, like there's not a lot of intervention at that point. You're not doing pump overs or punch downs or whatever. I guess another thing now that I'm talking about it out loud is, um, you know, when you're harvesting hill country grapes, they get to the press pretty quickly. Uh, for high plains whites that we make, you know, they're they're getting like a six to eight hour cold soak as they come down, you know, depending on what time they arrive, ideally you press them right then. But you know, what if it's midnight, you know, you probably wait until the next morning to press them. So they get some skin contact. They might, you know, leach some color out of the skins. They might taste a little different than if you could whole cluster press them 45 minutes after they were picked. So, you know, it's an interesting thing because Texas is very unique in that regard, right? Like, there's not another wine region in the world where the majority of your fruit comes from six to eight hours away from your most highly trafficked wine area. Um, you know, it's just kind of how it shook out, but, um, yeah, I mean, I think that has probably a lot to do with it. Well, keep making them cause they're tasty. Okay. Kristen, as far as dispelling additional myths around wine, I know, that at some points in time, you may see people on social media comment, oh, they have terrible wine, all their wines are X, Y, or Z, whatever it is that that person feels is unacceptable. But you like to use a broader um, description of what wine can be in what circumstance. So do you know what I'm getting at? Absolutely. Yeah. I uh, Something that just as we've been in this industry and I'll get on to, you know, Facebook wine group and someone's labeling someone's wine is bad or terrible, or I've seen all sorts of kind of sad, negative things on there. I think Mike has done a great job <clears throat> kind of talking with me about, you know, wine is, unless it has a flaw, you know, it has a lot of VA or, or something like it really shouldn't be labeled as good or bad. It's interpretive. It's, um, it's the idea that, you know, if we all liked the same wine, that would be really, really boring. <laughs> so there's something for everyone. Um, so I just, I try to encourage just this idea that wine is not for me versus a, a label of a negative label on it. Um, especially in regards to Texas wine, because we really need our consumers to be supportive of all of us. And we often say in our tasting room, um, a rising tide lifts all ships. And so you'll see in the industry, you know, we support each other. We go to each other's tasting rooms. We buy wine from each other. And really, truly, I mean this, we're, we're all friends. We're all, you know, it's very rare when you hear of a winery where people are kind of standoffish about it. And so I just encourage the public to do the same. Maybe instead of 
ranting about whatever at a winery, just kind of labeled as not for me and move on. I love when I see on social media that your whole tasting room and family and friends have all gone to experience at one of your neighbor's wineries together. I think that's so important because I'm sure you get in your tasting room, people are wanting to say, well, where should I go next? Absolutely. As a staff, we do a staff tasting day every year and try to just diversify where we go. And, you know, it's hard. We all work the same hours. And so to get out and wine taste can be difficult. So it's very intentional and so much fun. And then, yeah, also encourage our family and friends, which is not hard to do when they come to the Texas wine country. (laughs) One more question about Texas wine growers. I know one thing that they've been involved in just recently is considering what a new permit might look like for a Texas winery. So there's some question about what's a winery, what's a tasting room. How is Texas wine growers involved in this issue? So this issue came up because in the last legislative session, uh, the legislature charged TABC with a task to investigate a number of things. And one of those things was, would the creation of a new winery permit specifically for like state producers, uh, would that be of benefit to the industry and you know why or why not? Um, So TABC met with the various statewide organizations to kind of say, you know, ask, you know, ask the question, is that something that you guys would be interested in? Um, And Texas wine growers really took the bull by the horns, in my opinion. Um, The organization reached out to uh, some growers in New York who have uh, New York has a, a farm winery permit. Um, And it's a very good kind of template of something that we could model. And I think it would absolutely benefit Texas wineries. You know, if you look at the statistics from when they instituted it in like 1977 or something, their industry just like started this exponential growth curve. And it, you know, it provided a channel for the government to direct funds to the types of growers that the state wants to support um, it created like a list of the types of facilities and tasting rooms that, you know, certain consumers want to visit. And it also just like loosened a lot of the kind of pain in the butt processes that we deal with. So, you know, as part of the farm, farm winery permit, uh, you wouldn't have to apply for festival licenses every time you want to pour at a festival or offsite event. You just kind of get that ability by qualifying for the permit when you apply for the permit. Um, you know, potential for like relaxed reporting requirements um, as far as it goes with TABC, like there's still the whole TTB side of it, but potentially like just a lower cost permit. You know, most estate producers and, you know, that definition is not fully decided, but most estate producers aren't wildly huge. So, bring the costs down, make it easier, remove some of the barriers that exist. Um, Very cool to see the potential for it, and I I hope it gets uh, a little bit of traction. So that would only apply to wineries that have a vineyard and are actually, I mean, I don't know what qualifies you as one versus the other. Yeah. So I think TABC identified another state that had a similar permit, not New York. And they had suggested that you have to have at least five acres of estate grapes yourself. Uh, Texas wine growers wants to be more inclusive. And so their proposal dialed that back down to two acres and also provided like a mechanism to to satisfy it if you contract two acres of grapes from a Texas grower. You don't have to have them on your own property under your own control. As long as you have a signed contract saying we'll buy at least two acres of grapes, 
you could qualify for the farm winery permits. Okay, so so Ab Asterisk may transition at some point. I guess the legislature has to approve this. Oh yeah, it's it's in the infancy. Like this is yeah. a long term question thing. being asked. Yeah, for it to become mm-hmm. a bill, you know, it'll be it'll be a while. And so that would leave the current G permit as being more tasting rooms that are just serving whatever. Right. Right. Okay. And that's you know. The goal of this inquiry and of Texas wine growers is not to do anything to affect the G permit. Like if the G permit works for you, that's cool. Just to keep using it. We don't want to change it. We don't want to take it away. We don't want to leave it open to attack. We just think that the benefits to Texas producers would be, you know, huge. I mean, just like we're like we've been talking about. We're a family run winery. Kristen had to fill out a festival permit this morning and I heard her cursing it because the field, you know, it's like asking you for a number and then it says you're missing your characters. But as soon as you put the characters in, it says only numbers are allowed. It's just like, <laughs> come on, this is frustrating. You know, it's like, and so if you can just sidestep those things and focus on the things that are important, like there's no doubt to me that that would be beneficial. Well, I'm glad your lawyering skills are coming in handy by serving <laughs> as a legislative consultant to the Texas wine growers. Uh, yes, yes. Well, I just had to laugh because I love your branding, by the way, and I like the name Ab Asterisk of the stars, and I think your labels are lovely. But in my calendar this morning, I had AA meeting. Yes. <laughs> That's my favorite. I'll text people when I'm leaving the vineyard, and I'll say, leaving AA now, just to yeah. see, if they, see what they say. I've encouraged an Abbey. Yes. There you go. go. Abbey. Okay. Yeah. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time to do this. And I think that um, you guys are on to a lot of great things and look forward to seeing what's next. Thank you so much for having us. Again, thank you. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Thanks, Mike and Kristen. Stay tuned for Demerits and Gold Stars. Although the podcast is free to listen to, it's definitely not free to produce. One way to think about a podcast is like a newspaper or a magazine subscription. If you've gotten an hour's worth of enjoyment or education from listening, consider making a one-time or an ongoing donation to help cover the cost of production. You can do that at thisistexaswine.com. Only a fraction of listeners contribute, but it's much appreciated and helps me get motivated to continue putting out episode after episode. I also love it when listeners tag at Texas Wine Pod and your stories and posts and when you tell your friends about the podcast. You can also leave a review on Apple Podcasts and on Spotify and leave a few remarks. A listener named Richard recently wrote, Shelly's podcasts are so informative. Some of her recent podcasts provided very helpful information about the various wineries near Johnson City, Texas. We recently stayed in the area, visited several wineries, and had one of our best visits to the Hill Country. Thank you, Shelly, for your tremendous commitment to Texas wines. And finally, don't forget to sign up on my website for my occasional newsletter. That's where I'll communicate with you on my recent wine events and fun finds and wine and travel. That's thisistexaswine.com. Now it's time for a gold star. I've just returned from a great visit to Horseshoe Bay, where I attended the Texas Hill Country Wine Symposium. It was great to see so many friends, and thanks everybody who played along with the Texas Wine Pod bingo game. And I apologize to the people who heard me sing karaoke. During the reception on Tuesday night, three awards were given. Dr. Richard Becker, founder of Becker Vineyards, received the Tall Texan Lifetime Achievement Award. That was presented for his outstanding contributions to the Texas Hill Country wine industry and Texas wine. The Gilstrap Innovator Award 
was presented to Susan Aller and the late Ed Aller by Kathy Gilstrap of Texas Hills Vineyard. That award is given to someone who has made an impact and long-lasting change to the industry. And finally, the Texas Wine Industry Person of the Year was awarded to Kate LaFleur, Texas Hill Country Winery's Communications Coordinator. That award is given to someone who has exemplified the spirit of Texas wine with outstanding leadership and vision in promoting the region. So congratulations to all the winners. And that's it for this episode. I'll be back in two weeks with an interview with Katie Jane Seaton of Farmhouse Vineyards. Until then, get in touch. You can send your feedback, questions, or ideas for future episodes to texaswinepod at gmail.com. Finally, thanks to Texas Wine Lover website for promotional assistance. Check out txwinelover.com and download the app to help you plan your next visit to a Texas winery. Thanks for listening and cheers, y'all. 